Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, I am Anika Orock, author of The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and you are listening to the fabulous Baseball and Barbecue Podcast with Jeff and Lynn. Episode 86 of Baseball and Barbecue. And I know that's got to get you in the mood. It's got to get the blood pumping. It's got to get you ready. So let me just tell you, I am Leonard Aberman. And you know, you know darn well who I'm here with. I am here with my incredible co-host, none other than Jeff Cohen. Jeff, say hello. Hello. Hey, Lane, how you doing? Oh, I'm so psyched. You know, Jeff, we had, we, we had a great interview with Bobby Valentine. It was episode 85. A lot of people listened to the interview, and, and I've, we've heard some great feedback. I know people enjoyed it. I have a, a letter that I'm going to get to in a moment. But now, episode 86. I just want to talk about this for a second. Well, well before you do. Okay. I'm a little disappointed in Bobby Valentine because we only went, what, a half hour? I mean, I could have went on and on and on. He was just fantastic, but he was very generous giving us that, you know, the time that he gave us. So should we, if somebody sees Bobby V, they should say, hey, you need to give them more time. <laughs> You're right. But, you know, he's the, he's the kind of person that you could speak to for hours and hours. Yes. And it was just wonderful talking to Bobby Valentine. Now episode 86. Yes, 86. I want to get to that letter, but let me just say about 86. Two guests, maybe not as well known as Bobby Valentine. We have Mikey K from the Man Meat Barbecue podcast. Right. And we have 
Jeff Kornhaus, who his friends, family, and anyone else knows him as Pintar. Huzzah! Huzzah! <laughs> Both excellent guests. Yes. Mikey K is going to talk about barbecue. Pintar is going to talk about old-time rules baseball, what, 1865? Around that time, yes. Not as well-known as Bobby Valentine, but every bit as interesting. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. So I just hope that because they're not these incredibly well-known names, although, you know, maybe maybe everyone looks and says, oh, I know these guys. I just hope that people will listen because I know we're going to have people who love barbecue and who love baseball history, and they're going to listen. But I just don't want people to miss out on this because maybe they don't recognize the names or something because they were fantastic. Mikey they were. and Pintar. And Pintar is part of the baseball history series that we're doing. And he's the uh, second installment of our three-part series. So, you know, if you didn't hear the first installment, is Tom Gilbert. This is episodes 83 and 84. So check that out. Pintar or Jeff Cornhouse uh, is part two. Right. And then, of course, at the end of, I guess we'll talk about this uh, when we come to the end of, of his interview. I guess I'm, I'm jumping ahead. I'm, yes. I'm jumping ahead. But, Jeff, I want to just... I, I want to play, play. I want to read you something, but hold on one second, okay? Here okay. Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to welcome. Boy, I better have a good letter after that one. You better. <laughs> so let's just say that we received a very nice letter from a Greg in Ohio. And I'm not going to talk about everything else in the letter because it just, but what the main thing about the letter is this. He says, for the Bobby V interview, the Bobby Valentine, that might be the best baseball interview I have heard. Thank you, Greg, in Ohio. We appreciate it. And you know what? We agree with you. Yes. And if anybody else wants to get in touch with us, Give us a call. Our phone number is 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, we're at Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. Check us out. Jeff, with, with an intro like that, that song, you would think that the letter would have been longer. <laughs> you would think so, yes. <laughs> but, but that was fun, a little Blues Clues. Jeff, before we get to our first interview with Mikey K, let, let's just talk about baseball for a second. Okay. There, there have been, you know, it's, it's, it, baseball's like a roller coaster, I guess, or, or I don't know if it's, yeah, maybe like a roller coaster, because it goes like, and, the, and what I mean by that is, we had all these big contracts, right? They were giving out years, lots of dollars, lots of years. And teams were finding, perfect example, you know, with Alex Rodriguez, you're not getting the years. And then he wants to get traded. And, and of course, Robinson Cano gets this huge deal. And now the Mets are saddled with that. And, of course, the Marlins signed a deal with Stanton. Right, with Stanton. And, of course, then he gets traded to the Yankees. And, of course, last year you had... Uh, oh, Mookie. Mookie Betts. Yeah. Well, Mookie Betts, right. But let's... Uh, Bryce, 
Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper. The Phillies, 13 Trout. years. 13 Trout. years. Right. Trout. Trout, people might say, okay, that might be a good deal. I, I don't know, but but you're right, but it's a long deal. Right. right. Ryan Howard, uh, not Ryan Howard, I said Bryce. Bryce Harper. Right. Thank you. Bryce Harper. Long 13 year deal. Don't know why he needed 13 years. Now, Fernando Tatis just signs a 14 year deal. Yes. Right? We went from saying how teams were not going to give these long-term contracts. And now they're back to giving long-term contracts. So I guess like a roller coaster. We went up, the contracts are there, and then the contracts are not there. And now we're back to these long-term deals that never seem to pan out. Well, let me just say, with uh, I I get what you're saying, but these days long-term deals are happening with the younger players. So they bought out Francisco Tatis' Jr.'s free agency years and some of his arbitration years. Now, his average, what, 14 years, his average is about $24 million. I know it's structured differently, lower in the first couple of years, higher in the last. I, I get right. that. But, you know, just like, just like with Stan, if the Padres start to struggle and rebuild and is in year six of this 14-year deal – I would be surprised if Tatis says, you know what? I want out of here. Trade me. Right. Or if, if he sees other shortstops like Lindor or Baez or, or Story or Corey Seager or Carlos Correa getting more money than, than him, right. I'm sure he'll be complaining about that. Right. He's going to want to renegotiate. Sure. That's one issue. But, Jeff, 14 years. And the, the most surprising thing about this? He's only played, before this 2021 season, 143 regular games, regular season games. He hasn't played a full year yet, and he's gotten that contract. So the, so the thing is, though, they, I, I know they want to – I know their tactic is to take these guys when they're young and basically bind them up, uh, you know, the, keep, put them under their control for a number of right. years. Right, But why 14 years? That's – it's – well, he's what, uh, he's what, 21, 22, takes him to age 36, gets most of his prime. You know, then you start to decline in your late, late 30s. I mean, even in the early 30s, people think it's decline now. But he's there for most of his career. And look, both the club and the player are taking chances now. I don't think it's going to, I don't think the marriage is going to last the whole 14 years. You've seen it too many times. But look, Arenado signed a long-term deal with, uh, with uh, the Rockies. Where is he now? He's in St. Louis. St. Louis. Yeah, well, so the team, it's interesting. The teams are trading them with these long-term deals, but why didn't he get a 10-year deal, an 11-year deal? 14 years. I mean, I, I'm, I just Because I think understand. they're still in their prime. In Tatis's case, he'll be 32 in 10 years. Still part of his prime. I think they're really trying to buy out the whole right. prime, prime of his career. I wonder what we're going to see as far as length of years i mean i i would have thought you know harper with with 13 was long yeah we well 14 are we gonna see 15 16 17 i mean where's it i don't i don't think we're gonna see that unless they have a 20 year old kid or maybe an 18 year old kid who breaks in the majors which i don't believe the major league baseball ever let that happen i mean we've seen it happen i don't think they'll let let it happen because they, they don't want to pay someone that that long but you know lindor is what 27 this year He'll be a free agent next year. Now, they're not going to give him a 10-year contract because he's going to be 38 at the end of that contract. He might get a seven-year deal. 
age 75. He might, you know what, he, the way things are going. But, but you know what, they might have to give, might get it just to keep him for most of the, most of that time. But I mean, you look at a guy like Robinson Cano. And, yeah. And, and, and the Mets end up with him, but that's... But he was older when, when he signed that contract before the trend of having, you know, younger players get it. Right. Now, I tell you, the fact that teams have the money. Yes. <laughs> Nobody can convince me any, otherwise now. Yeah, they have the money. They'll complain that, oh, we have economic problems. You're giving these guys $300 million. Don't tell me you have economic problems. Yeah, the, I mean, the Padres have two players that they have a lot of money invested in. They just, I mean, that contract is $340 million that I saw for Tatis. Yeah. So, you know, that's, you're paying that. So yeah. they, these teams have the money. You're right. They they have it or they, they, I don't just, know. They're going to get it somehow. Those to prove that the super, superstars are going to get paid. A third string, second string catcher might not. I mean, that's, that's the way it is. All right. Well, look, we haven't really discussed, you know, current baseball in a while. So I wanted to just say that it seems to be in the news and I wanted to, to get that out. But now, of course, we have Mikey K. Mikey K. You guys are going li- to really enjoy him. He knows his barbecue. Enjoy. enjoy. They say if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Our next guest may argue that, may not, but. He certainly has immersed himself in the world of barbecue, which seems to be his passion, his love. We found him from his podcast, Man Meat Barbecue. He's got some great guests, some great, great topics, great information. And we cannot be more thrilled to have joining us Mikey K of Man Meat Barbecue. Mikey, welcome to Baseball and BBQ. What's up, guys? How are you? Um, I don't know much about baseball, but I, I think I know a little bit about barbecue. Good. Okay, well. Okay, so we won't ask you about the Cubs or the White Sox since you're from Illinois, the Chicago area. That's right. I mean, I know we won, the the, or the Cubs won uh, a couple years ago, and it, it really uh, drove ticket prices through the roof, and then Airbnb was kind of, kind of expensive. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because sometimes... We'll have on guys that we think are going to talk barbecue and they just want to talk baseball. And then we have guys on for baseball and they're like, well, I I was all ready to talk some barbecue. So it's good. You told us right away. We know where this is going now. What can I say? I'm a hockey guy. I'm a hundred percent hockey guy here, here in Chicago. So, oh, Blackhawks. Jeff's an Islander fan. So, uh, but we couldn't do, we couldn't do uh, baseball, barbecue and hockey because it just, it's just too much. Yeah, that's just crazy. That's, that's ludicrous. <laughs> Too many topics. Mikey, I happen to listen to an episode that you did. You have was Cowboy Kev, right? Is yes, sir. Okay. So he, you turn the tables, you who do interviews, he interviewed you. And I yes. learned some things from that, some things that I should not ask you. <laughs> <laughs> One of those, we'll start right away, is... You hate being asked what your favorite thing is to cook. So you know what? I'm not going to ask you what your favorite thing is to cook. I'm going to ask you, what do you hate to cook? What's your least favorite thing to cook? You know, I don't really have a least favorite thing to cook. <laughs> I, I, think, I think the reason I don't like that question so much is because I enjoy the cook process. I enjoy 
I enjoy cooking so much that there's very little that I don't enjoy to cook. So it's hard for me to tell somebody like, oh, I hate or I love cooking this or I hate cooking this. I, I kind of go through phases where it's like, oh, if I have to cook another pork shoulder, I'm going to go crazy. And I, I mean, I cook a ton of them. But you know how it is. It's just one of those things where it's like, I don't think I hate cooking anything. I think as long as the person that I'm cooking it for is enjoying what they're getting, it does, it does, it makes me enjoy that cook. You know what I mean? One of my, one of the things that I say a lot is two in the morning is not that bad. And I always get the weird stares. They're like, what do you mean two in the morning? It's not that bad. And I'm like, well, if you think about it, I usually start my cook around two in the morning. So when somebody's like, oh my God, I love this, you know, pulled pork, or I love this brisket. I'm like, well, you know what? Two in the morning is not that bad anymore. And they're like, well, wait, you started this at two in the morning, but it's like 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, yeah, two in the morning is not that bad. And they're like, what time will you start tomorrow? I'm like, two in the morning. <laughs> you want to come? <laughs> That's not bad. I, I used to be able to do two in the morning. Now I'm, now I'm probably asleep by nine. <laughs> I fall asleep on the couch. <laughs> I mean, so am I. I at, you know, on days that we're not, that we're not working, like, right. it's like 9.30 and I'm like, okay, cool, let's go to bed. So, Mikey, where did your love of barbecue come? When did that start? I see on your website here, it says around, uh, began around age 13 and, and it must have grown some there. So how did you get started in, in the world of barbecue? I fell in love with fire. I fell in love with that heat source. And I fell in love with creating a product from it and, and, and harnessing the chaos, right? You're never fully in charge with fire. You, you think you are. And you, you know kind of what it's going to do and you kind of know how it's going to react. But at the end of the day, that fire and that wood is always in charge because you could literally walk away from it and five minutes later, it'll go out. And you'll be like, why did it go out? It was a perfectly burning flame. It shouldn't have gone out. And other times, you know, you throw a stick in there and it ignites so quickly. And it's so crazy how quick that that ignition is that it, it spikes your temperature and you're like, Oh my God, whoa, 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 whoa. That stick went, you know, did I throw too big of a stick in? Did I, did I put too much fuel in? And that's what, where the fun of barbecue comes to me is, is working with fire and, and playing with something that I don't have full control of, but I can learn to harness and work with. And it also like, you know, you know, when you're younger, parents have that thing where it's like, don't touch the stove. It's hot. You'll burn yourself. And it's like, well, he'll only burn himself once. He'll only touch it once. I don't think I learned very well. So, you know, I'm always sticking my hand into a firebox and always like moving stuff around. And people are like, you're going to burn yourself. I'm like, don't worry about it. Wow. <laughs> I've got orange. I've got those orange space gloves for that. You know, the ones, the ones that are like silicone and they look like they, they should be on a, an alien and in, in like, you know, a B movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. I, I got so many fire gloves, fire safe gloves. It's not even funny, but sometimes, you know, I'll throw something in and I'll be right next to the cooker. It'll be two, three in the morning. I don't want to run back inside the kitchen. I don't feel like going to move to grab it. So it's like, what's the fastest way to do it? Well, it's, it's with my hand and just moving it and kind of hoping that you don't burn yourself and, you know, flicking it quickly. <laughs> yeah. Now you are, you know, listened to some interviews, heard a great one that you did with Myron Mixon. And I, I happen to, you know, you have a Myron Mixon smoker. Um, I do, yes. 
And we were at, the first time I had seen a, a Myron Mixon smoker, we were at a, a KCBS event in Staten Island and they were using them. Tell us a little bit about, it's a very unique kind of smoker, I think, only because you've got a hose connected to it, which is a little unusual, but I've heard great things about it. Tell us a little bit about it. So professionally, I cook on a Myron Mixon H2O. I have a lot of cookers in my backyard that I cook different stuff on, but when we do, when we cook at the kitchen and we cook professionally, I, I use a Myron Mixon H2O. With, if you don't know what that is, it is a vertical stick burner, which some people don't associate vertical cookers as a stick burner. They usually use charcoal, but the Mixon uses sticks. And the way that it works is the firebox is on the bottom, and then it has a giant water pan right above it. So the fire hits the water pan, creates steam, and then the smoke goes over the, over the water pan and into the chamber. So you're creating, you're steaming and you're smoking at the exact same time. So you're tenderizing while you're infusing flavor. And the other nice thing about the water smoker is, A, it's 100% insulated. B, you literally can open the doors in the cold weather and then close them. And that needle will go from being like, once the doors are open, the needle will start dropping dramatically. And then as soon as those doors close, the needle literally dead halts and just starts going back up, which is so crucial to where I cook at because we cook outside. We cook in Chicago, which gives us pretty cold temperatures. And I need to be able to sometimes get into my cooker because we're cooking on one cooker. So we're doing briskets, pork butts, chicken, pork belly burnt ends. We're doing all that stuff. So I'm constantly kind of moving and, and redesigning the way my cook is going and with that recovery time being so minimal it really allows me to open up the cooker and not have to worry about okay well I'm going to be 45 minutes behind because my recovery time is going to take that much longer to get the chamber up no that that water's sitting at 212 and it's boiling the whole time so it's just fantastic for it talk about the cooker I, I started smoking with, the, probably the way a lot of people do, is a Weber Smoky Mountain, okay? Which is, yeah. it's a, a bullet, they call it a bullet cooker, a water smoker, whatever. You've got the water pan. A lot of people talk about they don't even use the water pan. They fill it with sand, that, whatever. But if the water, Myron said something very interesting. If the water is not actually boiling, it's not giving off steam. Is that, is that the case, that the water has to be boiling before? So when, when, I get, when I'm using the Weber, the, the Smoky Mountain, should I have enough fire under that pan to produce steam before I start cooking? Or, or can I even get, have you ever used one? Do you think I could get it boiling? Yeah, I, I own two different Smoky Mountains. I own the 18 and I own the 22. Okay. Um, I personally enjoy the 22 a little bit better than the 18. I think it, I think that cooks a little bit more evenly. Uh, yeah. I also think you can get a little bit, because you have a bigger firebox, you can get a little bit bigger and hotter of a fire. But it, it won't create steam if the water's not boiling, right? Right. It, water starts to kind of create steam probably around 190 degrees. And that's because parts of it will start boiling, but the whole thing isn't at 212, right? Mm-hmm. With the, with the uh, Smoky Mountain, you can use that water. It's two different things. You can use it as a heat sink, which if you're keeping it at 190 degrees, that means it's constantly keeping that. It's helping keep the temperature in your cooker and you're using less fuel. Or you can boil. You can make sure that it's boiling 
and then you're creating moisture in your chamber. So it depends on what you want to use it as and depends on how you want to cook. I think that's the thing that a lot of people, they go on YouTube and they start watching all these videos and they start talking to these guys and they start going on Instagram and they start looking at how this person does it, how this person does it. And then they, they, they create this aspect where it's like, okay, this is the rule. It's not. It's not the rule at all. You got to cook the way that works for you. You know, if, and, and it also depends on where you are in the country. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you're at a higher elevation, the air is thinner. It's going to change the way that cooker runs. Right. If you're at sea level, that's going to change the way that cooker runs. And I think people forget to look, forget to say those points. They just say, well, this is how it works in my backyard. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, awesome. I get that. That's how it works in your backyard, but we're not all sitting in your backyard. Some of us are sitting in Utah. Some of us are sitting up in, uh, up in Seattle, Washington. I have a couple of friends up in Seattle, Washington that cook, uh, that, that are in that area. And they're like, man, they're like, you don't understand. There's so much moisture in the air that we don't have to worry about putting moisture in our cookers. That's just, you know, we don't have to worry about it in any way, shape or form. Mikey, I'd like to change gears a little here. Let's talk about your man meat barbecue. You have a website. Do you do competitions and? No, sir. You have people on your crew. I uh, guess your wife, Amanda, then you have Cowboy yep. Kev and Andy Piper, who you call yep. Pipe. Please tell us about these people who work with you at Mad Meat Barbecue. So my wife was just kind of suckered into it. She just kind of had to do it. Uh, but Cowboy Kev, we became friends via Instagram and started talking. And we just started talking barbecue and started kind of feeding off of each other and then started talking more and more and more. And then, you know, we were looking for a blogger and I was like, hey, bro, do you want to do it? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So he started blogging for us a little bit. It's been a while since he's posted anything. And then Andy's, Andy's journey with us was quite interesting. Me and him met at a previous job years ago. And then we reconnected and started talking and becoming friends again and hanging out. And he was like, you know, I want to start learning how to cook. He's like, I want to learn how to barbecue. And I was like, okay. He's like, I have no, he's like, me growing up, Barbecue was always like, he's like my dad throwing like frozen burgers on a grill and calling it barbecue. And I'm like, yeah, that's not, that's not barbecue, bro. And he's like, I don't know how to cook. And I was like, okay, let's get you, let's get you like a Weber kettle and let's start learning how to cook. And he's like, okay. So like, if you go back through his blog, it's all his journey of how to learn how to cook, which was pretty cool. Like I would be like, okay, cool. Today you're cooking chicken. And he's like, I don't know how to cook chicken. I'm like, awesome. Today you're cooking chicken. This is how we're going to do it. And I would walk him through every single step. And then I would be like, okay, go do it. And he would go do it. And he'd be like, well, that one was way better than I've ever done it before. And I'd be like, cool. Next week you're cooking chicken again. Let's make it better than the, than the time before. So I taught him how I learned how to smoke. I learned how to smoke on a Weber kettle. I lived in a city. So real estate was very, very, very small. So it was either having a Weber Smoky Mountain or a Weber Kettle. Well, I also wanted to be able to grill. So I was like, okay, cool. Which one do I get? So I got the kettle and I just learned how to smoke on that and learn how to control the vents and learn how to control the temperatures, make sure your fire doesn't get too big and really, really deep down go into fire management. And that was, I, I think that helped me tremendously in, in what I do now because the smaller the cooker, the harder it is to cook on it. 
the bigger the cooker, whew, man, every time we go into a bigger cooker, it's so much easier to cook, so much easier to control that fire. Cause then I can build a bigger fire and it, it just kind of works for me. And it, it gives, gives me good, clean smoke. gives me great flavor. Right. Mikey, what do you do now? Tell, tell everyone that what you're doing with the, with barbecue. So I am the pit master at fire and smoke barbecue company located in Pingree Grove, Illinois. I control all of our, everything from the, the, the meat quality that we get in to what we're putting on the smoker, how we're seasoning it, all the seasonings that we create, all the seasonings that we make. We also have a rub line that is available to purchase online at fireandsmokebbq.com. You can go check that out. Basically, the, re- the, re- the way we got the rub line was people started coming up to us at, at, at all our pop-ups, and we were like, hey, we really like your flavors. Like, is there a way that we can get those flavors? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. I guess we'll bottle them. <laughs> right? We're already making them. So we started bottling them. But that's what I do today. I, I, I run a barbecue company. We do pop-ups. We pop up at different breweries around the Chicagoland area. And basically, that's kind of how we've been. So we, we're a restaurant without a storefront, which right. is a little bit crazy, right? But we work with you know, a ton of craft breweries in the Chicagoland area. We're in and out of you know, all of them every single weekend. And that's kind of how we survive. And then we also do catering and all that kind of stuff. Coming up here soon, we will have a vending trailer that we are hoping to be open three to four days a week on. So you won't have to follow us to breweries. You'll you'll be able to come to the vending trailer. We will still keep a lot of our pop-ups at different breweries just because we have such a good relationship with so many of those places that we don't want to ruin that. And we also don't want to kill the mojo of people that like following us. You know, we have people that are like, oh, we drove to this place to, to follow you guys. And we found out this brewery and like, they kind of enjoy finding the different, different beers. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? The, the pop-up's not so crazy actually, because, well, first of all, the big pop-up that, that was just on Netflix was Rodney Scott. And when his place burned down, you know, he did some pop-ups and they were, they were big and he made, you know, they made some money to, to put into the new place. But we have by us, out in the, uh, you know, out in the Hamptons or out in, you know, Suffolk County. We're on Long Island. There's a lot of wineries at the end of the island. And they basically have that, too. They'll have, you go there, you know, for, to, to have uh, wine and there's some breweries and things. And people want to eat. And there'll be, either, uh, there'll be some people barbecuing or there'll be, a, there'll be a truck there or something like that where you could just get some food. So it, the the pop up concept is great, and then of course the thing is if you want that to follow that, like you said, then you really like the food, and then the next time you go, they're they're not there. So you need to know where where is that where are they popping up next? I think the the cool unique thing about that that brings to each brewery is when they're bringing in new new barbecue or not just barbecue places, but new new places, new food trucks, different types of food, different styles of cuisine. It's really cool because you can be a, a big fan of their beer and you can go there, you know, every single Friday night and have a different dinner. You're, you're not just going to the same old restaurant. Yes, you're going to the same place. They're hanging out with the same people. You know, you're the same bartenders. And it's kind of like the whole cheers, everybody knows your name kind of type thing. And you're getting used to that. But you're getting different styles of cuisine. 
And then sometimes it's, it's cool in the sense that people are like, I would have never tried this if you weren't here. You know what I mean? There's a lot of really cool places that are popping up in the Chicagoland area that it's like a lot of people wouldn't have tried that cuisine if they weren't sitting there being like, hmm, you know, I'm kind of hungry. Right. You know, let me uh, put in a plug for Fire and Smoke. The website is fireandsmokebbq.com. On the homepage, you have these <laughs> look fantastic pictures. I mean, you're getting really hungry just looking at them. It's just, <laughs> it looks absolutely delicious. And uh, the menu's on there, your, your story. Uh, you can contact. There's a store for merchandise. I suggest everybody should go check it out. It's fireandsmokebbq.com. Mikey, how long have you been doing the podcast for Man Meat Barbecue? Podcast started in, I think it was the end of 2014. Okay. So you've been right, doing it a right long time. So we've been doing it for, for a couple of years. It, it's, been, it's been awesome. I've gotten to meet a lot, of, a lot of cool barbecue people. I've gotten to take some fun trips. I've gotten to be a part of some amazing experiences. Our show is different than everybody else's. We we swear a lot. We drink a lot. We I, I think I let people be themselves. I don't I don't want it to be um, censored in any way, shape, or form. I, I want you to tell me exactly what you're thinking. And if that's something that somebody else disagrees with, then so be it. I'm a big fan of uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, and one of the things that he says on his podcast is everyone should should be able to have a dialogue with somebody else, right? Whether we agree or we disagree, we still should be able to have a dialogue. And I think that's super important. And that, that's something that I kind of took to heart is we should always be able to talk. Whether I agree with you or disagree with you, I should be able to hold a conversation with you. I should be able to see your points and I should be able to give my rebuttal. And that's kind of how we run our podcast. We, we just, it's a free conversation and it's a long form conversation because I think people got so used to the interviews like being like, okay, question, answer, question, answer, question, answer, mm-hmm. question, answer. I feel like you learn a lot more about a person having a conversation with them. You know, like I base my podcast on the, on the idea of we run into each other at a airport bar mm-hmm. and I say, Hey, I like barbecue. You like barbecue and you start talking and then somebody just pressed record. Yeah. And that's the conversation. <laughs> All right. So, so you know what, Mikey? You, you do your podcast, and, and I think it's great. And now you're on here. And so, you know, you could uh, ask Jeff and myself some questions <laughs> if you feel, you know, I want, we want you to feel comfortable, okay? Well, I, have, so, oh, <laughs> I, I, I do want to ask uh, Mikey about something. I, I know you have a, a YouTube channel. I've been looking at a couple of your videos. And I noticed uh, in your backyard, you have a big green egg, which, by the way, I love the grate on it because it has mammy barbecue on there. I noticed that. Yeah. I saw you had a bull smoker. I see you have a charcoal smoker. I don't see a pellet grill. Uh, why is that? <laughs> you know, if I wanted an outdoor crock pot, I'd just Ooh. use the indoor one. Okay. I, I think they're great to get people into it. I think they're really good to set it and forget it. But it takes away what I love about the art that I do is it takes away the fire management. It takes away the making sure that there's enough proper oxygen going into it. You know, most people are like, yeah, but it locks it in at 225, 250. No, it doesn't. Just because that screen says 225, 250, that needle's going up and down, up and down, up and down. 
Why? Because it has to. It has to keep moving it in. Uh, it has to keep moving the, you know, that auger has to keep pushing it in. And I just personally don't feel that I can get the quality of barbecue off of a pellet smoker that I feel that I should serve people. That's perfectly fair. Fair, fair enough. You know, you know, I also did watch a video where you cook a ribeye on a cast iron on top of the charcoal. I'm going to yeah, try that. That that looked absolutely amazing. It gives it gives that uh you know it gives that cast you just put that cast iron straight onto that charcoal, let it get super nice and hot, let it get going, and then just throw her down. It gets phenomenal. The nice thing the nice thing that it kind of does is it still gives a little bit of that smoky feel to it. Not not too much, but you'll get a little bit of that feel where it's like, oh, this was cooked on an open flame. Right. Now I okay so understood that you're not a, a huge fan of pellet grills and at least when when myron was on and he was talking to you about his pellet grills you were respectful you didn't say anything to him that was very good but one thing i did i did learn when you did the interview um when cowboy kev interviewed you was that you guys are big fans of sous vide i'm a big fan of sous vide for the the reason that i can I can cook things for long, long periods of times at low temperatures and break down the fat in a different way. It renders the fat differently at a lower temperature and it melts differently into the piece of meat that you're cooking. Right. And then the nice thing is that I can finish it on a, on a, you know, on a big green egg or on a PK smoke on a PK grill or, you know, on a Weber, Weber kettle, whatever kind of apparatus I'd like to finish it on. I can finish it on a cast iron if I'm feeling lazy you know? Well, I, I have to tell you that on this show, we once in a while, confession is good for the soul. And once in a while, we, we confess our barbecue mishaps. So I'm glad you're on because I consider you a barbecue expert or maybe you don't want to be called a barbecue expert. So whatever. But you're knowledgeable about barbecue. I want to confess to you guys something. We're two guys. We're three guys. Sorry. We're having a conversation. I feel like we've bonded, and I, I have to confess. So I tried something this past weekend. I tried to do something a little different. All right, I usually I make ribs. You know, everybody makes ribs, right? And some are better than others or whatever. And we all, we smoke them, we put the rub on, we do whatever. Okay. My wife is a foodie. You know, I'm just a barbecue guy, but she is a foodie. So we get this Milk Street magazine. I don't know if you've heard of Milk Street, right? I have not actually. Okay. So it's a magazine. They like to do food differently. They like to, it's almost, they, they take it down to a science. They had a recipe in there for ribs made with an, a go, Goku Jang. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. It's a, it's a Korean paste. It's like yeah. a pepper paste, right? And it sounded great. You put the, the I went to a store called H Mart. I bought the pepper paste. You, you put a, rice vinegar in there, a rice wine vinegar, some sugar, some garlic, ginger. It's great. Had this all, did it all right. Of course, it says to put it in the oven. Well, I figure anything that goes in the oven can go on my grill. And it Absolutely. says, put, the, put it on, meat side down, wrap it in foil. The thing was, you're supposed to wrap it in foil. Then you get the liquid from the meat and the sauce. You pour it out. You skim off the fat, you add it to the reserved mixture, and you baste it, put it back on the grill like a broiler, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, needless to say, I did that, 
I put the meat side down. I guess I had fire under it. I thought it was indirect. I burned the crap out of those ribs. Okay. Oops. All right. Sugar. Yeah. Sugar, yes. Sugar caramelized right away, right? Yep. Yep. That's exactly. Yes. So live and learn. But I feel a lot better now. You know what, Jeff? I do. Confession is good for the soul. <laughs> and- hey, I mean, what was the worst thing that happened? You you ordered pizza and you were fine, right? Um, <laughs> well, the, the funny thing is, I so I teach barbecue classes here locally, and I always start off with you know people that I'm like, okay, who's who's nervous to do this? Who's scared to do this? Who's you know blah blah, blah to do this? And you know you always get people that are like, yeah, I'm terrified of cooking brisket. I'm terrified of cooking chicken because I don't know how to do it. And I go do you want to know the difference between me and you? And they go, yeah, you cook professionally. I go, no, not the difference. Keep trying. I'm like, they're like, you know what you're doing? I'm like, nope, keep going. What's the difference between me and you? And they're like, I don't know. They, they give up, right? And then I'm go, I go, the difference is I've screwed up more food than you've ever cooked. That's the difference. I've tried more times than you're willing to try. That's what makes me standing up here and you sitting down in the chair. There's no difference between you and me. I'm just willing to go try it 150 times before I get it right to make sure that I master it and keep going and keep going and keep going. So when, when you mess up, you learn from it. You, you go, okay, cool. There was too much sugar. There's too, too much this, too much that. So next time when you go to cook it, maybe you're going to cook it at a lower temperature. Maybe you're going to make sure that it's indirect. So there's no, like, unless you don't learn from your screw-ups, Man, screw-ups are the best things that ever happened to you. Yeah, you learn from them, absolutely. So, Mikey, uh, I wanted to ask you this. Man Meat Barbecue, how did you come up with that name? The idea behind Man Meat Barbecue was it was supposed to be man, it's supposed to stand for mankind, meat, and barbecue, right? Most people, like, are like, what do you mean? Why do you say mankind? Why do you just shorten it to man? I'm like, I don't know. It just flowed better. Just something better at the time. You know what I mean? I'm pretty sure I was drunk when I figured it out, but <laughs> you know, it's what we do. And I, when I first kind of started the idea of, of, of what we were doing, I, one of my neighbors is actually taught broadcasting, radio broadcasting and podcasting at Columbia in Chicago. And I'm like, dude, I want to start this. I have no idea how to do this. He's like, just start doing it. And I'm like, yeah, but what if it sucks? He's like, it's going to suck you're going to be really bad at it. I'm like, thanks for the vote of confidence, Matt. That's fantastic. He's like, no, no. I'm like, think about it. He's like, no one's going to listen to it. I'm like, awesome. Why am I doing this? He's like, you need to suck. He's like, it's the same thing with the way you cook, dude. He's like, you sucked at first, right? And I was like, yeah. He's like, now you know how to cook. He's like, you need to suck at first. He's like, get it out. He's like, you will learn how to talk and how to communicate as the episodes go on, because you'll start listening to yourself, you go, oh, I sucked at that one. I sucked at this one. Oh, but if I change this, oh, that flow sounds way better. Oh, that pause there? Yeah, I needed that pause. So it's a big thing. So kind of like when I started Man Meat Barbecue, got it. I guess it was six years ago now or something like that. Yeah, somewhere around there. I think we're, it's about six years old. We've done a little – I think we've done 300 episodes, and – it's just, it's been, it's been a wild ride. We've done some crazy stuff. We've done some dumb stuff, but we've had fun the whole way around. <laughs> I, you know what? I can tell. I, I, you know, a little advice from me. I think you should do a little more of the YouTube videos. 
because you have a great personality and you really come through the camera and people can really relate and it's really fun. I think you should, should do more of that. I, I need to, um, I, you, you are not the only human that gets on me on that. Apparently um, <laughs> I, I need to do more. It's just been the, the craziness with timing. I got so much stuff going on with the rub line with the uh, catering company and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's trying to find the time to, to create everything. And as you guys know, barbecue's not short cooks. So it's really hard to be like, cool, let's start a video that's going to take eight hours to do. And then we got to edit and then we got to do all this kind of stuff. Right. And it's like halfway through, sometimes I forget. It's like, oh shit, I got to go do this. I got to go do that. And it, it, it's just insane. Sometimes the phone rings halfway through recording, which is awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like one of those, like, let me take this off the cooker and your phone starts ringing and you're like, great. <laughs> I got to redo all of this. Like, but like I said, your personality and your, your, your love of the cooking of barbecue that comes through naturally. And I just want to compliment you on that. That's fantastic. Dude, thank you so much. And I, I'm going to try getting back on there. I really am. It's just, it, it, it's trying to find the time to do it all. There's, it's so crazy how much time social media actually takes up in your day and you, and you got to do it, right? You have to do it. You have to be present there. Otherwise there's no point. Right. So give us uh, your plug. You have Instagram, you have a Twitter, Facebook. Tell us all about that so people can find you. So we're Mammy barbecue is most active on their Instagram. Uh, it's Mammy barbecue, Instagram slash Mammy barbecue. We have a Twitter. I don't really use it very much. And then we have a Facebook, and that's MMB Chicago. So Facebook.com slash MMB Chicago. And then we have a Facebook group also that you can be a part of. That's not, it's not just the page, it's the group where you can post stuff and you can talk to people. And I think you just put in Mammy Barbecue on Facebook, you'll get that. And then I have my own personal page, which is mainly pictures of my kid and me, which is Mikey K. And then Fire and Smoke has an, uh, has an Instagram, and it's Fire Smoke underscore BBQ. And then I think we have fire and smoke on Facebook and then obviously the website, the website will give you everything. So if you go, right. to, if you go to manmeatbarbecue.com, it'll, it'll give you like there's links to everything at the bottom. You know, I, I joked at the beginning when you first came on, I don't think we recorded it. And I said, you know, Oh, we have Michael K from uh, ESPN. <laughs> and, and so now I'm going to ask a stupid question. Cause you probably say no. Does anybody, did you ever get anyone who said, obviously you don't look like Michael K, but you know, did anyone ever say, uh, are, are you the, are you the same Mikey K from uh, ESPN who does Yankee games? So I've never gotten that. I have gotten like the weirdness of, I used to do photography when I was younger and we would definitely, people would kind of give like, they'd send us messages and be like, Hey, are you interested in doing this and this for this TV show? And I was like, what? Like, no, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I don't do that. Like, that's not what we do. And it would be for him. Like we, we, we kind of got in this round Robin of who could get what social media name first. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so then actually, okay. It wasn't such a dumb question. <laughs> okay, good. It was a battle to get social media names though. Because <laughs> you know, which whichever platform popped up first, it was who could sign up faster. Right, Mike. You, we want to thank you very much for taking the time for talking to us about Mammy Barbecue, about Fire and Smoke. We wish you 
all the best. Thank you for coming on Baseball and BBQ. And, you know, keep in touch. And, and like I said, all the best to you. Awesome, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we and, thank uh, you. If there's anything I can ever do for you guys, please let me know. Oh, well, if we're in Chicago, uh, you could feed us. That, <laughs> that would that. be That would be we first can, and foremost. <laughs> we can feed you. We can take you around to some very, very nice that is the one thing this city does not lack is amazing food, great drink, and um, good entertainment. So if you're ever in the Chicagoland area, please, please, please message us. We'll have a great time. You may not remember most of it, but it'll be good. <laughs> I like that's That's the that's my 20s. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mikey. Thank you very Absolutely. much, Mikey. Thank you, Mikey K. Thanks, Mikey K. Yeah, and, and as he said, it's not the baseball Mikey K. And you know what? People should come up to Michael K., the baseball guy, and say, hey, are you the barbecue guy? Because Mikey K. is making a name for himself. Yes. Check out manmeetbbq.com if you want to check out Mikey K.'s website. Right. And he does have a really good podcast. And as we say all the time, no issue if you listen to other podcasts. Because we're not the one and only, but please include us in that listening. Yes. <laughs> don't, don't stop listening to us and go to him because, you know, you don't want to do that. Right. <laughs> we have two companies that we think are fantastic. BaseballBBQ.com for grilling tools and accessories and FifthAndCherry.com for these incredible cutting boards. Check them out. Jeff, who do we have next? Oh, Pintar. Oh. Huzzah. Huzzah. The, before we get to Pintar, before we get to Pintar, I, I re-listened to the, because this was a little while ago that we did this interview. Right. So entertaining. Yes. Entertaining. Uh, knows his baseball history. And, and very, very good. So I think everybody's going to really enjoy it. So enjoy Pintar. Our guest plays by the rules. In this case, the rules he plays by are over 130 years old, and many have been replaced by rules of the modern game of baseball. Is today's game better? Depends on who you ask. We certainly had a great time watching him play and immediately knew he would make a perfect guest on baseball and BBQ. We are so glad to welcome Jeff Kornhaas, known as Pintar, to the show. Please join us in giving a big huzzah as we welcome Pintar to baseball and barbecue. Welcome, Pintar. Huzzah! 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 Now, where are the ribs? <laughs> I want some sauced-up ribs. If we're, if we're baseball and barbecue, you got to keep it up. You know, I got the whole plate, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Jeff, it's a good thing we do this virtually because it, we, we've been going through racks of ribs. That's, every guest seems to want ribs. <laughs> Everyone loves ribs. That is, that's got to be the most common. You know, when people love barbecue, they love ribs. You know, it lets you break the rules with civility because you're not expected to use a fork and knife. So you could easily be caveman with a, a, a modest, you know, side... You're, you're not being terrible by eating it with your, your fingers. So it kind of gives you that leeway to be yourself. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. 
and they fall off the bone. If they, well, I like to fall off the bone, and yeah, I have to say I, I do make pretty good ribs. Jeff, would you agree with that? Not too shabby. Oh. You know, if Jeff, Jeff's the connoisseur, so the next time we're down in the area, we could do a live feed cast sometime next summer. Down in your area, I'm coming for the ribs, and I'll bring the baseballs and bats. You got it. All right. it's That's a date. That sounds good. So let's go right here to you play. Tell to, I want our listeners to know what kind of baseball you play and the year are the rules that you play by specific to that year, or is it a, is it kind of a grouping of years of that time? Well, you know what? That's a good question, and I'm going to get into that. And also, I'm going to tie in, I guess you guys know baseball, love baseball, baseball and barbecue. And then you met me at a very special event this summer. And what was also very special about that, and I'd like to kind of bring this out, is that the team we played, I went down there with the Atlantics, Brooklyn Atlantics of Long Island, uh-huh. and had a great time pitching and playing. But the team we challenged and played was the Resolutes, Elizabeth Resolutes of New Jersey. And that a team was captained and started and uh, really pioneered by a guy named Paul Salomon. And I don't know if you guys had heard of him or met him by chance, but... Unfortunately, I kind of want to bring up his name, too, to honor him. He had just passed away. Mm-hmm. Game, I had not seen him in a while, and he had some problems with his legs, didn't know, seemed to have cancer. But I bring this up because to answer your question, that team officially back in history started 1872. So he always wanted to play by the rules of 1872. I play a lot of times, and most of us play primarily by the rules of 1864. And with that, baseball in its early evolutionary stages was just always changing from year to year. And we try our best to be accurate. And so back to Paul Salomon. Paul Salomon was, he called him quick step. He was probably the most ardent, fiercely devout man of baseball by the original rules and keeping it very straight and narrow, not letting anything from the modern era creep in as best he could. Very, very fierce with keeping things very original. So if you're playing by the rules of 1872, it was exactly that. And we tried to duplicate those, those rules and era with the customs. So look at baseball and uh, it officially started in 1845 with the New York Knickerbocker Athletic Club out of Manhattan. And these guys were just looking for exercise and athleticism. And uh, the Victorian era, you know, before, you know, Jane Fonda came along, you had to exercise with that. And so they started to look around. They said, hey, we could play this uh, game, a bat and ball game, baseball. But it was unseemly for men, gentlemen, to play this child's game. It didn't have form or function, and it was unseemly. So really, the New York Knickerbockers actually wrote down 21 rules for the first time in 1845. It was like September 1845, and they played the first baseball game. But it was funny because out of those 21 rules, I think, as it said, only seven really pertain to the game. The other rules were about how you dress, make sure you got your shirt set and, you know, you're proper and don't swear or otherwise you'd be fined, you know, five cents, 25 cents, I guess, depending on the bad word, whatever it was, because it was the Victorian era. 
but that was the start of it. And then it started to change and evolve very fast, very rapidly. And uh, for an example, we played by the rules of 1864 many times. And that rule is you, you hit it, you got a tremendous hit and it bounces on the ground and anywhere in the field, if the fielder catches it before the second bounce, that's out in the field of play. So we'll joke sometimes, say, that's a terrible rule. They should change that next year. And then we do, because in 1865, then they did change it and said, in the field of play, you had to catch it in the air, the fly rule. Foul territory, it could still bounce. But at least now in the field of play, you had to catch in the air. So even from one year to the next, it was changing a lot. Uh, does that kind of answer that? It was a long answer. Yeah. No, that's kudos. But you didn't have any gloves at the time to catch it. You can catch it on a bounce or in the air. You, you did not have any gloves. Is that correct? No gloves. The, the gloves really didn't come until the early 80s. Even then, many times they chose not to use the glove. So when we saw you play this past summer, and we really enjoyed it, I got to tell you, uh, what I really wanted to do is, get, is really get a hold of the ball. I wonder if it was harder, softer to catch it. What, what did it feel like? If I had known it, when you saw it, this one's a little, it's a game ball I actually had. It was a good catch I had, this, uh, this ball. But uh, this is the 1860s baseball. And this one is called the lemon peel. And I don't have the cleaner one right here, but it's like a cross stitch. It's like an X marks the spot. Wow. You can see it's one piece of leather. It's kind of like four petals of a flower that get stitched up, and that's the style. So it's a little bigger than a regular baseball. This is the regular baseball we see. Matter of fact, Louis Tiant signed it. Louis Tiant, the baseball player, great pitcher. So you could see that the size a little bit. A little bigger. It's yep. just slightly bigger. And softer, right? It's softer. Um, it, it is softer because, see, back then in the 60s, they were winding them by hand. So they would get rubber and they would wind yarn, maybe a little finished string after that, and then put the, uh, the leather over it, and there you have a baseball. They didn't have spalding sporting goods to go buy from. So, you know, a uh, very interesting uh, uh, story on that in a second. And then this ball is the ball, if you, if you look at this, this is a ball – that they use from the 1880s. And this is the style and substance of the ball we know as today's modern ball, but a little different. See? But it looks pretty similar, actually. It, it has the same cross-stitching. It has the same pattern, the, the, the one you show. But the other one, kind of different. The other one looks a little more like a softball, I guess. But where do you get that? Where do you get that ball, anyway? I mean, where do you, who's making those? Now, that's, that's a good story. So the early days, since, uh, you know, uh, Leonard, you were from uh, the Long Island area, um, that's really where the rebirth of the birth of baseball came back to us. So in 1978, they kind of were kicking around the idea, Old Beth Page, Long Island, that you knew, and they would do all these different things. And they were kind of looking, what else are we going to do? Well, yeah, they, they had the Civil War reenactment and, oh, they have the stick in the, the wheel and you spin it or little child games. What else? What else? Oh, they played baseball a little bit. How'd they play back then? And so the early days, they kind of brought it around. So I think they played one game, 78, and then one game, 79, and they were just starting. But of course, they didn't have anything. And then after that, another uh, uh, recreation village in Ohio in 1880 took it up 
and that was the seeds that started to grow both of them but long island really did this but i guess years ago was they had whatever they could do to get a ball then finally i think eric miklich and another friend and i'm forgetting his name we call him kick uh, they got together and got some baseballs made and i believe we just got them from china <laughs> wherever they got them but of course of course yeah. they got it from china <laughs> absolutely you know <laughs> outsourcing baseball our american baseball they got it from china. okay yeah but there's others uh made so right now there's some choices but there's some great artisans that will hand make some baseballs you can buy them it's hard for a team like mine if you play many games during the summer to buy those artisan baseballs you'll put out a pretty penny and uh but we do have access to balls and that's where we get it so right now i get these from uh eric out of long island but there's other choices Let's talk about some of the other roles. When we were watching you, we noticed some of the batters be up at bat for maybe a few minutes, taking ball after ball after ball. Obviously, there was no strike strike, strike zones or balls and strikes. But there was an umpire back there. Could you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, they were afraid of my pitching. That's what I could say. <laughs> <laughs> I had them dazzled. Well, the thing is, is that it was 72. They were calling it. It's three, three balls and three strikes. And pretty much when you pitch, you're going to throw a ball. And nothing starts until the umpire will give a warning. And it will be warning to the pitcher or warning to the batter. So if I pitch and it's not really a strike or in that area, then right away there's a warning to the pitcher. After that, then you could call the strikes. You, you can't really strike him. You, you got to get, get that called that warning, but a ball, if, if I don't throw it, then it'll be a ball, warning to the pitcher, warning to the pitcher, and uh, you get one warning and free balls, and then the guy's going to take his base. And also the unique thing is that if somebody's at third base and nobody's at first or nobody's at second, and you walk the batter, that run comes in. It's not forcing from the runner. It's everybody advances one base. So you've got extra pressure to not walk anybody in that game because sometimes you could let it, let it go. Just, just load them up second and first. And now you could hit any base, right? Can't do that. But the thing is, I think sometimes if there's a, a close call, sometimes an umpire won't really know what it is. They'll let it go. But it's really just, uh, you know, four balls and three strikes. And you're throwing it underhand. Yeah, that's the thing. It's throwing underhand, but it's a swift pitch. And, uh, and that's different. When you say underhand, people think, you know, softball league, just give it a big. And if you were closer, I don't know if you saw, like, I'm, I'm one person that has a style of pitching that uh, a lot of my friends and competitors like to hit against me because it's unique. Because I will throw it in swift or fast and I'll work the whole plate and I'll come in low, then come up high. But what I also do with the rules, there's a, a line when you go 1864 and it's a 12 foot line. So I'll start all the way over here on the end of this line. The next pitch, I'll go all the way over here, 12 feet over on this line. So of course, with the angle of the ball coming at the batter, it's going to change. And I'm trying to change their eye, change their angle. And then I'll try to come up high on purpose with the underhand pitch. But then the next thing, what I'll do is I'll give it a change up. And the change up a lot of times, if I'm pitching it right, They'll swing before the ball gets there, and that's pretty fun. Yeah, that, it, it was really a, a interesting the way, the way you guys played. I noticed that there was the stolen base was in play, 
So a lot of that. One of the batters was hit, but didn't take a base and stayed in the game up at play, and then got hit again. Didn't like him. I had to hit him twice. <laughs> I don't know who it was, but I'll do that. Sometimes if there's a good friend on the other side, I might just hit him if nobody's on because because if you hit him, the ball ricochets over the runner could run. So that's the only risk. But I'll hit him as because as, it's it's underhand. Even though it's coming in, you know, maybe it could come in pretty fast. Right, but you don't take a base. So that's the no. Point. You just got a man up. Back then, they they chopped wood. Their hands were calloused, and you wouldn't take a base. Gotcha. gotcha. Now, now you said you you played for the Brooklyn Atlantic, right? That day, I was a guest of the Brooklyn Atlantics. They're a great group of guys, great friends. Always try to challenge them, and I was honored to go down there with them and give them an extra player and just enjoy the day. And it turned out to be great. And, and you mentioned that the, you had the New York City game, which was New York Knickerbockers. But I also read in that book I, I told you, uh, How Baseball Happened by Tom Gilbert, there was also a Massachusetts game. Do you know anything, the difference between a New York game and a Massachusetts game? Yes, yes, yes. Now, you know, I, I'm a Red Sox fan and kind of like I, I'm a New England guy, and I've always kind of liked Boston over New York. So, geez, in one way, I wish the Boston game won out. But uh, it turned out to be that the New York style was a little bit more civilized. So the, certainly the Boston game or the Massachusetts game, the primary thing is they had soaking. So pretty much, you know, when we played kickball when we were kids, running from base to base, if you could nail the person with the ball, they were out. So the same thing with the Massachusetts game. If you could pick up the ball and hit them before they got to the base, they were out. And a lot of people started getting hurt. Uh, <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> especially, like, ah, <laughs> that's my brother, and we got in a fight earlier in the day. You know, you could take a little aggression there and and uh, do that. So that that was that was one of the main main things that happened. But it was the uh, early days. I think it was called the Mountain Athletic Club, and they played one of their first games in the Boston Commons. And I had forgotten the dates. Excuse me. Somebody like my friend Eric, who's, who truly is a historian would remember the exact date and uh, the New York game got adopted soon after. And, and probably for that, people were getting hurt and it was made more sense. Fine, Tom, what is it about this period, the time period that you love so much that, you know, you, you enjoy this time period in this game? You know what? Okay. There, there's, there's two things on that, which is a great question. The first and foremost, why I really like it. It was a simpler time it was good competition and athletics, and you really enjoyed your fellow man. You went out and you, you had fellowship, camaraderie, friendships, and you went out there and gave your all. And after the day was over, you smiled, right? So here it is. In the early 60s, it was customary that when a team would travel to another team, the team hosting would give a banquet many times afterwards. Remember the Victorian era and so the speeches and stuff. So you'd have two teams that would have a, a challenge, competition, and afterwards they might go over and have a dinner. Remember, they didn't have uh, McDonald's and Burger King and Arby's on your way home. You know, it was a different thing and it was a, a different competition. So you might have a team coming from upper state New York coming down to the New York area and they would host them, have a great game of competition and then have this banquet party afterwards and they would make speeches to each other and congratulate each other so it was really good natured which is great so 
going forward, I like it because we do play, but at the end of the day, nobody's getting paid. We're not having st- uh, trophies and everything. And on Monday, we all go back to the real world and work our jobs. So let's have a good time when we can. Here's a great example to kind of finish that point off. I'm playing on the Hartford Senators, the team I started with years ago, and I'm getting to know the, the game a little bit. They're telling me, now, boys, you got to tell the truth. We are playing Victorian era baseball. Tell the truth. Okay, yes, sir. And you have to be gentlemanly. Okay, yes, sir. And, uh, you know, and so you, you go through this, and we're told a little bit. And so this one inning, I'm, I'm new, and I watch one of our guys on our team run, and he tries to steal, and he slides in, and the umpire said, safe, I think it was. And uh, the shortstop said, no, he never got to the bag, and I tagged him. You can't really see it because there's only one umpire. The way the umpire's kind of standing off, smoking a cigar, you know, <laughs> that's how they did it. It's not that the umpire, there was no instant replay or anything, but the umpire was expecting the men to kind of tell the truth. As the game developed, it wasn't, but he would kind of watch the body language of the players too. So he looked out there and he said, well, you know, it's not like today you made the call, that's the way it is. And he goes, well, runner, what say ye? The runner looked at us and uh, the umpire said, runner, what happened? And then the runner looks at the other team, looks at our team, and then our team goes, runner, were you out or were you safe? What's it, what, what do you say? And he kind of looked at us, his own team, and he goes, maybe. <laughs> because it was so funny because that was, that was such a truth teller. He, all he had to do was say, no, I tagged the base. The only one that would have known he lied was the shortstop. But we're trying to tell the truth. And he was caught with the modern era and the true nature of the sport. And he, he was, maybe he was, he was torn, right? So that's one thing. So it was that camaraderie. The next thing that I really like is that it's a little bit simpler and it becomes very inclusive. When you're playing, I am, I've got the Red Onion team right here. This is uh, the team I put together from Weathersfield, Connecticut, and Weathersfield became very famous for Red Onions. But I think on that day, I was wearing my blue uniform, which is the Liberty uniform, which is eh, really kind of the nicest uniform out there. Pretty cool. It's a great travel team. But the Red Onion is very inclusive out of Weathersfield, Connecticut. I want everyone to play. So with the bound, even people that are trying to get back into the sport could catch it on the second bounds or give it a try and not be scared off. So it's very inclusionary with that. And I like that a lot too. So everybody could play. And then as we get a little bit more developed, you get some, some really skilled people. Some of the better ones will travel to New Jersey with us or Gettysburg, New York this coming year, where we have a fantastic festival and tournament, or better yet, Long Island, um, always the first weekend of August, where we have tremendous games in Long Island. And that's more of a select team, but it's developmentary with the Red Onion. So inclusionary is great. The civility is is great. And those are two of the real main reasons why I like this rule. And we do know that it's a bit... <laughs> put on because we are modern, modern people. I did have a suggestion. Maybe we should try something a little novel called, you know, Vic, well, not Victorian because it's kind of hard, but a 19th century baseball politics. So you could have political banter, but you have to keep it civil. Wouldn't that be a, a, a unique idea? Has seen 
Americans having to speak and be gentlemanly towards each other. I never, never happened, but it's a, it's a, it's a dream. It's a dream. It's a dream out there. Yes. Yeah, it's a dream. (laughs) You mentioned about traveling around different areas and tournaments, but do you, is there a a league that you're involved in and goes to the next level to a, 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 like a championship game or something? Is that something that you guys do? Well, you know what? Uh, yeah, ask about that. And I could talk about that. But right now, there, there really is no league. There, there's a couple of associations and a couple things have been tried and failed or tried and failed. But everything is pretty much independent. There's no nobody really overseeing. Up in Connecticut, um, uh, Chuck Ciccarello is a great friend of mine. And he uh, birthed a team called the Bulldogs. It's fashioned after Yale. And so it's the Y on the chest. And I, I did the Red Onion because of my great love for the town of Wethersfield, the oldest town in Connecticut. And one of the great connections is, you know, George Washington did sleep there and he did play in the Battle of Yorktown there. And we could show you the house that he did it in, still standing. Great history, great tradition. But also the Liberty is what I started years ago, but that was a higher skill team. So I tried to include people and have the two teams. So nothing's under any real umbrella. So what you do is in the winter, and we started doing it now, we will try to just pick teams and play, and it's all free-for-all, but with, with, with a certain decorum. In Connecticut, we've got four other teams, and so we certainly make sure we play each other, a home-and-home. And so uh, there's New London. There's a fort at the base of the Thames River in uh, New London, Connecticut. It's a great venue. We play right on the ocean looking at the submarine works across the way. Woodstock, Connecticut, a great center with a very unique 19th century house across the way. And we play there. And then another one, Lisbon and stuff. And then the the L Bulldogs. So we, we do that. But then we finish off our season by just having friends and associates. So the Atlantics on that day played with in New Jersey. We'll go down to Smithtown, Long Island at their home field or they'll come up to us, our home field. The uh, Resolutes had come up to our field a couple of times, and I had gone down there a couple of times, and we just pick up those games as we see fit. It's just year to year could be different. Is it only on the eastern seaboard, or do you travel out west some, some more? I mean, you mentioned New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, anything, any other region? It's, you know what, I, I certainly want to do that. And other people have done a little bit of mixing, but primarily, primarily the center of the, of, of the country, you've got the Chicago land area and Ohio and, and there in Michigan, and they've got some good teams, good camaraderie. They've got the Henry Ford Museum. They've got something in Rochester, New York, um, that's supposed to be, uh, I think it's called the Silver Ball Competition, and even up to Minnesota. And I've heard of those. I have not been out there yet. I traveled on business and met some of my friends there and we brought some of those people out here. We have an all-star game every year um, that Chuck Ciccarello and that's been fun. And we had some uh, visitors from all over, but primarily here up and down the seaboard, you know, right down to Pennsylvania, down to Maryland, Virginia, we'll play who's ever available. Now the best way we really meet is when we go to a festival Long Island, and uh, the guy uh, starting that festival might put a couple of teams together, and they will try to put teams that have not met each other yet. So if I go there and Tom 
big bat, we call him. He might say, hey, you know, I got this team, the Elkton. I, I have seen them and know them now, but I'll have you play Elkton. I don't see them much at all, but we get a chance to play them. And, uh, or whatever the case may be, or the Gettysburg uh, experience is fantastic. And by the way, you gentlemen loving this, this show and doing what you're doing, look to put it on your calendar the third week of July to go to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, where it is absolutely the premier festival. We will have, I think it's nine baseball fields. So there'll be 18 teams playing at one time. And there's five time periods during the during the day and we play Saturday and Sunday. I usually try to get down there on Thursday to have a couple of drinks and on Friday enjoy the history of the Civil War. And then Saturday and Sunday we play on the lands where the, the South were staging before the fight. If this pandemic is not uh, raging on, that's uh, a road trip for us. We, yeah. like take, we take baseball is, and barbecue on the road. Yeah, you mentioned 1964, which was in the middle of the Civil War. Yeah, Randy, actually, when we play for there, we're supposed to play by the rules of 1863 because that was the Gettysburg Address by Abe Lincoln. You're right. And then the war continued, ended in 64. So uh, a lot of times it seems like it's relaxed back to 64 rules. But we do try to, it's just a little little difference on, on, on some of the things. But it's a great venue and the teams from all over, we stay, a few of us stay at one common hotel and, you know, have a lot of. A lot of interaction and, and, and fun in between the games, but it's a great, great, great weekend and, and something to see with always the better people coming out trying to put on their A game. So, Pintar, of what, what do you think's the most right, – well, this has to do with the rules. So I want to know – I'd like to know which rule you'd like to bring back and what do you think's the most outrageous rule that, you know, they changed – that you guys play with? Outrageous that they changed that we shouldn't have it anymore? Hmm. Yeah, that kind of groups. <laughs> That's probably pretty much the question. I'll tell you, in one way, I mean, there's, there's one. No arguing with the umpire. Great. We should, we should still have that. Arguing with the umpire. So here's how I handle that. So in my games, I understand that some people are really smart and smarter than the rest of us. And so if we've got a game going on and the umpire makes a call and that guy starts to argue, I pull him over and go, listen, listen, I, I, I see your genius. You, you, are, you are above us and, and I really appreciate your input. And uh, what I realized is that this guy really did blow it. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing. So we need to make some kind of corrective action right now. Because of your ability, we're going to have you umpire now because obviously you're much better than he is. And I'm sure that you don't get any guff. Nobody's going to argue with you because you really are wise and all-knowing. <laughs> Go into the field and play, which he really wants to do anyhow, and you will take your talents and now umpire. <laughs> you know what has not like that? Yeah, star- sarcasm. Sarcasm <laughs> is still... <laughs> that's, that's it's sarcasm, great. but if I do it with etiquette, it must be Victorian-styled. I mean, of course. You know, Pintar, it's funny, because I was saying to Jeff, we've been trying to get... Well, no, we haven't yet, but we're going to try to get George Brett as a guest. You're going to bring me on because my name's Pintar. Right. And I, I said to Jeff, what an episode that would be. George Brett and Pintar. Exactly. And Pintar. Because <laughs> how many times people think of him all the time. I'll just tell them, because of my name, he is thought of many times. Right. <laughs> exactly. So that was, that's going to be... 
if we could get George Brett, that would be. Yeah. Uh, Planker, getting back to that game we saw you play in New Jersey, what I, I didn't notice, and maybe you can let me know and educate me, the, the pitcher's mound to the plate, it wasn't, was, it wasn't 60 feet, 6 inches as we know today. What was the rules back then? Well, and good thing. Well, first of all, we, we played on a field that in almost every way is identical to the dimensions of today's field, 90 feet per basis, and you got the home. Now, remember, it's home dish, you know, plate you know, over the dish, you know, they'll use that terminology because today we've got the plate, but back then they had the round disc, right, or the dish, and uh, that's it. But the pitching, uh, and the only other thing is there's no home run fence. You know, it's – Yeah, we saw that. Defend that game, but – we, we, we love to play in open fields. And I'll tell you about my experience with the Hall of Fame in a second. You just don't have that. But the pitching distance from the uh, plate, center of the plate out, at 45 feet, there's a front line. Okay, it's 64. We played 72 and 64. And then behind there, there's 48 feet. So you have to start and stop within those two lines, which is just three feet wide. But you could, you could work that whole area. And then in 72, the box was uh, – Six feet, eight feet that you were pitching in. So it was a little bit more room. It was boxed in a little bit. But it was still, you know, the front was 45, uh, 45 feet. Now, in eight to the 1880s, they still didn't have a mound, but they had uh, flat ground. But they, they pitched overhand from 50 feet away. So still not 60 feet, six inches, but 50 feet away. And that, again, was a box. And that's why they say sometimes in baseball you hear them, oh, they hit it back up through the box. Right. That refers to the box that used to be marked out for the pitcher. And that's when we hit Because sometimes it doesn't make sense. What do you mean you hit it back through the box? What box? I don't see a box. I see a mound. But, right, right. That great point. You hear that all the time. And yeah, the mound is round. It's, uh, it's not a box. What's a box? Or when, they, or when they say, oh, come on, over the dish. Come on, over the dish. What dish? What dish? Well, that goes back to the early days of the game. And I guess the base was the bag. I guess there used to be a bag there. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we did have a bag. It's it's just a canvas bag. And uh, typically they would put in sand or gravel in the bag. And sometimes people do that. I mean, to this day, I'll use just a canvas bag, 12 inches by 12 inches. But I actually stuff it with other things. So it's still the canvas bag that looks like it. Mm -hmm. I actually put a foam in there because it dries up easier. If you put in the gravel, it's harder to move around and mess around. But it's a little detail, but we try to make it look the right thing, but I'll put foam in there. You can't tell. The one thing that you guys play, uh, you use an authentic ball, you use authentic bats, the uniforms, but the shoes, I noticed everyone had the modern day Nike cleats and. Oh, now you're hurting my feelings. Oh gosh. I wish you could see. So <laughs> I don't mean to, I don't mean to offend. <laughs> Are you kidding? I, that's it. We're out of here. <laughs> If you notice, I had all black leather cleats on, and, uh, and and they're certainly not original like that, but at least it's just all black, and uh, it's called Roy Hobbs. So it was a manufacturer that I did get, and I've got quite a few, and the funny thing is, I had spikes. They, they kind of look like the Yogi Berra spikes, you know, you say New York Yankees, early 50s, that kind of thing, I'm Yogi Berra, and I wore those suckers out. I kept them together with bailing wire and tape and glue and all of this. But now they finally blew out after like 12 years. So now I've shellacked them and I'm preparing to put them on my wall by the grandfather clock. Those cleats are going to be art. 
So they are not Nike or Swishes. And so what you did notice is something that we really don't like. And when people do that, it's very disappointing. The better people black out their cleats at release. So there's no attention to the feet, just blacked out cleats. So I do that. All my cleats are blacked out. I've got quite a few with that and I keep them going. So you hurt my feelings, but that's okay. We're <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it wasn't your feet I was looking at. I'm sure I saw <laughs> other feet, but <laughs> it is. And 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 you got to understand now. And now, when you say that, that you're talking about the ball and and the shoes and what was funny. So uh, there's a, a very skilled player and a great guy from Massachusetts, and he was down playing with us. And I looked at his bat, and I was very upset. What the heck is he doing with that bat? Now, that bat is not right. Oh, my God. That got me upset. So what I did is when I got up to bat and he was out in the field, I hid his bat so he couldn't find it. So he had to use something else. And then he does. He goes, uh, you hid my bat, didn't you? I go, yeah, that was disgusting what you're trying to use. <laughs> now, they, they kind of call me a bat Nazi because I'm just trying to say, listen, guys, the one thing we use, we use bare hands so there's no tool, right? Yeah, we dress in a uniform, okay, you know, funny-looking uniform. But the only thing we use it's a tool, is this bat. Let it be authentic. Now, what was authentic back then? Well, you got to start to break it down a little bit. I'll tell you this. That's the way they were. If you showed somebody a bat from that era, they're going to look and say, what's that? You're going to say it's a bat. Because it doesn't look like every Tom, Dick, and Harry's bat of today's baseball. Today's baseball, the guy goes, oh, my God, I use a 34, I use a 33, I use a 32. But, but pretty much they all look the same, right? Back then, they had such style, such uniqueness. But the biggest thing they had was size and weight. When you look at Joe Torrey was one of the last players that still had a really thick-handled baseball bat because he was older and he was kind of used to that style, right? And it was a big bat. I remember the Joe Torrey bat, the thick handle, was odd at that time because it was just, you know, he was one of the last players. You go back to Jackie Robinson. So my uniform maker, the woman that made this, is a woman, Paula Weaver. Fantastic. She makes uniforms for a league of their own. She makes uniforms for the Dodgers, the Red Sox. She makes them for the Charlie Sheen movie. She makes them for me um, and all of this, and she's tremendous. But she was like, Jeff, uh, yeah, I know your friend, some of the Red Sox. I made a Jackie Robinson uniform. Would you bring it up to Boston for me? Sure, what's going on? She goes, they're having a Jackie Robinson day. I made the uniform so the kids could see the uniform. I said, no problem. I'll go to my bat maker, which is a guy named Mike Peace. He's actually a lawyer out of Newtown, Connecticut, makes all my bats. And I said, Mike, don't you have a replica Jackie Robinson bat? Yes, I do. I'm going to borrow it to bring it to Boston. I went to Boston with the Jackie Robinson uniform and the uh, replica uh, Jackie Robinson bat. And then the Red Sox had David Ortiz. You know, David Ortiz, a big boy. David Ortiz is a tremendous guy, tremendous baseball player. They hit his uniform and they hit his bat. I put the Jackie bat next to David Ortiz. <laughs> David Ortiz bat is nothing but a toothpick. <laughs> Jackie Robinson had a bigger bat or tougher bat. It was great. So that. And then when you go back even further, you look at Shoeless Joe Jackson. If I were to give you the Shoeless Joe Jackson bat, you're like, what the heck? Who could swing this bat? Joe Jackson could. And Babe Ruth said that Joe Jackson was the greatest hitter he ever saw. And Babe Ruth tried to copy Joe Jackson's swing even. Right? So there, now there's a big heavy bat. And then the stories about Babe Ruth swinging a big bat. And then you go back to the first guy to have 3,000 hits in baseball, a guy named Cap Anson, Adrian uh, Cap Anson. 
and his bat was big and heavy like a club. None of these bats I've described, which is not so old, none of them have the shape and style of a modern bat. So now you go back and you start to go back to the 1860s, and these guys want to use a bat like cleats with a swish on it or something that's so disheartening, but they come up with a bat that's styled like a modern bat, very similar. It's got the size or similar weight, and then they put a coat of paint on it and say it's a vintage bat. No, it's not. No, it's not. You know that it was big, bad, and heavy, and there were many accounts of bats being 48 inches long. Wow. And more than that, there's some that were claimed to be five feet long. It was a picture that a, a friend of mine had gotten. So anyhow, what you had seen, I actually do have a bat that's 44 inches long, but a lot of times I'm the one that's promoted big bats and a 42-inch long bat. The reason I don't have a 48-inch right now is because my bat maker cannot get his lathe to make a 48, but I found another friend out in New York State, and I should have a 48-inch long bat that I should have ready for Gettysburg this coming year. Wow. You about to tell us a story about the Hall of Fame? You want to get to that? Oh, uh, that's a pretty good story. So, yeah, so the, the Baseball Hall of Fame. So, anyhow, uh, very unique. You, you, you saw me, uh, Jeff, at the beginning. I had that picture pop up. I really don't know how it was unique, but I went down to play baseball with the Boston Red Sox. In the process of things, I had, uh, I had met somebody who was friends with the Red Sox. I got some great acquaintance. And anyhow, make a long story short, I had met Lou Gorman a couple of times. And Lou Gorman, the general manager of the Red Sox, he wasn't that anymore, but he's still associated with the Red Sox. And it was something called the Great Fenway Park Writers Series. And I was talking to Lou Gorman. And this was the first year, I don't know exactly when it was, but the pro baseball players were not going to go and do the induction ceremony game in Cooperstown that they used to do. It was customary during that time, right? So I said, hey, Lou, I heard about that. I go, who wants those overpaid babies anyhow? Look at me. I love baseball, and I'm, I'm talking like that to Lou Gorman. And I go, what you need is you need, you need guys like me and my friends up there. I go, that's enough, because this is the Hall of Fame. This is the museum. Everything is built on a foundation. The building is only and big as strong as the foundation is solid. Well, the history of baseball is solid, but it's not even recognized properly at the Hall of Fame. We should be playing early 19th century baseball on the induction ceremony weekend, letting people see and relive history and make it come alive. He goes, that's a great idea. I go, yeah, good, good. Now go do it. He goes, okay, well, why don't you go tell him? I go, what? Lou, I'm talking out of my you-know-what. <laughs> what am I going to say? No, go tell him. I go, Lou, I don't know anybody there. He goes, you know me, and he pulls out a business card, just tell him Lou sent you. I said, are you serious? He goes, yeah, I like your idea. So I called up Jeff Idelson, president of the Hall of Fame. I said, hello, Mr. Idelson. My name is Jeff Kornhaus, and I play this 19th century baseball. Listen, you've got some really nice artifacts, but they're kind of dry and dusty. I could help baseball. I could make baseball come alive for you. He goes, who are you? I go, I'm Pintar. <laughs> <laughs> And so then he got me in touch with a woman named Anna Wade. Anna Wade was in charge of the education uh, segment of things. We went up there and I started to understand there was a little bit of politics there. And as certainly with the Doubleday field. Now, first of all, we know that Doubleday had nothing to do with baseball, right, guys? What? Absolutely what? nothing. <laughs> oh, I know. Shocking. Hey, well, you know, you guys talked about the cleats. I'm coming back with that. <laughs> you know what? You, you just... That's like telling Jeff there's no Santa Claus. Yeah. Okay? You just, you burst his bubble. 
Yeah, Jeff, and there's no Easter Bunny either, okay? All right. <laughs> hey, with, with, Jeff, with Jeff Santa Claus, he leaves ribs on the mantle instead there you of... Go. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm talking to them and we're trying to put this together. And I could do demonstrations in the statue uh, area of the Hall of Fame. We could do some talks and we got to play a game. They go, well, it's kind of hard. We're not really in control of double-day field. They go, that's a modern field. It has nothing to do with baseball, in my opinion. I don't, I don't have any interest in that. I go, now, the, I heard that there was uh, this, uh, the Fenimore Art Museum. I think I'd like to play there. Their eyes lit up, and I hit something. I guess they're trying to pull it together, the Fenimore Art Museum. They want to highlight it, but it doesn't always have the attention. But by pulling that, there was some room, because all we want is grass. So we actually got there, and because of this, it all worked together. When we went up there, the Hall of Fame advertised us. We went up there and gave uh, living demonstrations on baseball. Then we played real games. And then um, following month, we were on the back cover of the uh, Hall of Fame magazine, me and my friends, and uh, it was a great time. That's absolutely great. That's absolutely great. That is great. That, you know, Pintar, we had, not to name drop, but we had uh, Jeff Idelson on, on the show and with Gene Fruth when he was doing... Uh, grassroots Baseball. Right, Grassroots Baseball. Nice. We had a fantastic guest, if people are interested in... Shoeless Joe Jackson, we had on Mike Nola, who uh, runs a virtual museum mm-hmm. for the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum. In your opinion, as a historian who, who plays 1964 baseball, who do you think is the father of baseball? No, nobody. Nobody. Now, here, here's the truth of that. Uh, and, and actually, guys, uh, it just came to mind, too. I mean, there's two guys after where we're off. I, got, I have to recommend you to have your next session with the the next one for the richness and to get this documented for you gentlemen is Marjorie Adams. Now Marjorie Adams is the great granddaughter of, in my opinion, the most influential man who created baseball. Was he the inventor? No, it was a group event. Now what happened was in was baseball created? No, see what happened, and this is the, the, the truth of the matter is, Spalding needed to sell sports equipment. So how do you spell sports equipment? You make it uniquely American and sell it as an American sport. So that's what he was really trying to do. So the whole spoil, the commission to find the originator of baseball was just a crock. Yep. You look at history, they knew that, right? So, but, if, but early on, like I told you, the early days of the Knickerbockers, they were like, hey, we're going to do this, but it's a kid's sport. So they made the rules. They kind of made it gentlemanly, finally. So it had evolved from stick and ball games. In Connecticut, there was wicket being played. You had properly said that there was the Massachusetts game that was kind of developing, and then the New York game. So there was these stick and ball sports that had been around one fashion or another. But it did start in 1845 because those are the first rules. And that was by a group, by the club. That, there was this gentleman's social club. And now as we look at that, we break it down, how did this really work, work in? And like any group, every group, it's the 80-20 uh, principle, right? Leonard, you got, you know, you got 80% of the people waiting for the other 20% to do all the work. And uh, I'm sure that's what it is, kind of by nature. But they did it and they had a good time. But when we look back at history, we see one guy that was very influential, and that was Daniel Lucius Adams, or Doc Adams. He was a doctor. And I could go into more and tremendous. And early there, he was hand making the baseballs because we couldn't buy them. So 
that was one of the important things. Actually, it was one book written like they couldn't find baseballs and they were using rubber and, you know, baseball was really hard to come by. And somehow they bumped into some German guy walking around New York City with rubber boots from Germany. Hey, we'll buy the boots. They bought the boots, cut it up to make baseballs because that's how hard it was to keep the game going. But also he was a doctor, but he was pretty good at math. Eventually, he's the one who set the base pass at 90 feet. He actually created the shortstop position. He was the first shortstop in baseball. He was promoting the game at nine innings. But one of the biggest things and why he's going to be in the Hall of Fame, it was a miss until then. He hand wrote the laws of baseball in 1857. So now he hand wrote, it was 1858. Now I'm starting, to, I'm starting to doubt myself. Is it seven or eight? I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the thing. But anyhow, 57 or 58, he hand wrote the laws of baseball. So the last chance he got to be listed to the Hall of Fame, he missed it barely. The next year they found out, they found this paper. We call it the Magna Carta of baseball. It's the Dead Sea Scrolls of baseball. And it's owned by a, a museum in Oregon. And it sold for $3.2 million. Now, remember back in school, gentlemen, how we learned to write with that funny lined paper? That's what he wrote it on. That kind of lined paper, his handwriting, $3.2 million. Wow. That's why I think he's the most influential man. Hand wrote, he supervised the bats. He was the president of the Knickerbockers. Then he was called the Nestor of baseball after he was leaving the game and still influential but tremendous. And here's the best thing. Not his great, 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 or just his simple great granddaughter is still with us, still promoting the game. She's got tremendous stuff. One time you should do a show just on Doc Adams because he is a pinnacle foundation member. The other guy, Cartwright was good, you know, promoted himself a little bit. And uh, some of the others, I'm going, going blank. They're, they're good. But Doc probably was more preeminent. And then he was a very modest guy. So the Victorian era, you don't brag. Well, he was a proper Victorian gentleman. What was going on? He, he didn't brag as much. And that's why he didn't get the same name recognition. Mm-hmm. And later years, he married his wife, which he said was the greatest achievement of his life, his wife. And he had a great, uh, a great, great, great life. But so instrumental in the beginning. And many more things that I'm not putting down right now. So uh, that's, that's what's happening there. I think Gilbert, I think Gilbert, Tom Gilbert mentioned, talks about Doc Adams. In yeah, the I think so too. Yep. Yeah. 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 Doc Adams, when I started this game, wasn't really known much. I talked about my friend, uh, Eric Micklich, and he kind of talked about this guy at first. I think I probably didn't pay attention to the name. He didn't tell me. And I heard this, but after that, I'm playing a couple of years and it was still not known, but in my existence in the game, and I started in 2007, I've seen him come to life. Even for me, like there's been some other people that knew of him, but it wasn't really promoted. And now it's really coming around. All of us in this project or in this, this, this hobby of baseball, now we understand who he was. And, and you get to other, other things. And Marjorie Adams has documented a lot and going around, but we need him to be into the, into the Hall of Fame. And I hope to get every single enthusiast for the game on the day he's inducted. I want us all to be in Cooperstown and everybody dress in a Victorian era uniform or Victorian era garb. Think about it. Everything else we do is history. We replay history. We exemplify history. We, we reenact history. But this one time would be the only time that we would have current 
modern history on the enshrinement of this forefather, early pioneer of the game. It would be the only current thing we could ever be involved in. Well, that'd be terrific one day when it happens. Pinto, we appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. We learned a lot. Definitely check out Old Time Baseball in your in your area. I know we're going to go to some games in, in Beth Page. I'm looking forward to going to Gettysburg, like you said, hopefully uh, next July. And, yeah, and gentlemen, so with that, certainly I'm gonna we'll be we'll be in touch. Anything of, of through the time, but certainly a great event, Old Beth Page, because Leonard has to get back to his homeland. And then you've got <laughs> the Gettysburg because it's just the preeminent thing. And uh, then where we met this year, I do believe we're going to try to play a game again there for the museum, which was celebrating uh, the Negro Leagues, which was a great uh, a great event, and go back inside the museum and see that. And uh, I do hope it will be the Atlantics against the Resolute once again, and I'm sure that we'll also be able to introduce you. It's too bad this uh, Paul Salomon had passed away. What a tremendous wealth of knowledge on the game and details and history, but really just just keeping it straight up with the original rules. Yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch. Lovers of baseball, we have a great time. Hi, Tar, we appreciate this very much. This was terrific, so thank you. Thank you. Fantastic, gentlemen. Anything else in the future, have fun. You're invited to other things. We'll be in touch. And then uh, after this, I'll send you Marjorie Adams' contact information or put her on. Just contact with her. It's it's a special treat while she's with us to enjoy that and document it. It's very, very unique. That is yeah. the most influential man to develop baseball. How, how, yeah. old, uh, how old is she? She must be up there. She's the great granddaughter, but. She, well, she is up there. Of course, I'll, I'll joke in different ways. We call her cranky. Well, she's old enough to be cranky. We, we, we do give her the nickname cranky. I, I think that she's in her later seventies. I'm forgetting. And she'll probably hit me if she sees this. And that's fine. But uh, if Doc Adams had kids later in life than his child, her father had kids a little later in life. So that's how it kind of stretched out to where she is today. It's just kind of a great happenstance, an amazing thing that we actually have her here when you, when you consider baseball started in 1857. And here's that is amazing. Very that, that amazing. Is amazing, right? I mean, it's just, she's just the great granddaughter. I mean, you, you'd expect yes. to be like the great, great you know <laughs> exactly exactly and and she didn't have any children and so it's pretty much in, in her passion for the legacy is there and after her it pretty much you know uh passes to the annals of time and history that's why it would be great for you gentlemen to get that and do, do, do yourself a baseball favor and, and get in touch with her i'll help you thank you thank you very much and thank you pintar jeff cornhouse we really appreciate you coming on it was a very informative interview right len Oh yeah, I I love how he he did get us Marjorie Adams. He did the great granddaughter of Doc Adams, who will be on episode eighty seven, right? Which will be part of our baseball history arc, I guess you could call it. He he promoted her very well, uh, so she's fantastic. What's what's amazing is and and is that she's the great granddaughter of. The man who wrote the rules to baseball. Exactly. I still that still blows my mind. Amazing, it was, isn't it? Yeah. 
we will get to that, of course, when we when we talk to Marjorie Adams. But back to Pintar. When he talks about all the bats and the uniforms and the proper rules and how the game was played, and he's he's very colorful and just tells a great story. You he know? does, as in Goodfellas. You know, you you, you tell a good story. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I gotta tell you, Pintar's a good guy. Yes. He really is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, he really is. So, Jeff, I leave it to you. What are we going to do next? Well, we're going to end the show with the poet and the musician, Joe Krakowski and Dave Dressel with Baseball Always Brings You Home. See ya. <laughs> 